Good morning. How's everybody this morning? All right. How you doing, Miss Donna? Good. <laughs> You're welcome. That's what I like to hear. Chris, you need to take some cues from her. She knows how to say good morning. <laughs> Most of the time, it's it's good morning. Good morning. It won't be here. But <laughs> oh, all right. Let's go to the Lord in word of prayer. Hunter, you want to lead us from up there? Let's finish. Amen. All right. Revelation chapter nineteen. Revelation nineteen. Revelation chapter 19. Who can tell me what we talked about last time? Fall of Babylon. Okay? So we've stepped through this thing. We've talked about, let's see, we've talked about, as we've done this end time study, we've talked about how we should interpret the Bible. We've talked about ages and dispensations and what that means. We've talked about the day of the Lord. We've talked about the times of the Gentiles. We've talked about Daniel's 70 weeks. We've talked about the rapture. We talked about the Antichrist. We talked about the tribulation. Last, we talked about the fall of Babylon. And here we find ourselves in Revelation 19. Now, we're not necessarily, again, going right through the book of Revelation, but, I mean, once you get to a certain point, it kind of follows that to, to some point. Um... And today I want to talk about the marriage supper of the Lamb. So I'm glad to get out of the tribulation and talk about something different. What can you tell me? What do you know? What have you heard? What do you think about the marriage supper of the Lamb? Anybody? Chris said it refers to the bride of Christ, the church. Okay, anybody else? I love to watch people look down when I look their way. <laughs> That's good. So Brother David said it was a sort of analogy of, 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 of things. And I think, that's, I think that's important what you said, that back then the, the marriage and the marriage feast and celebration supper was very important in their culture. Uh, today, not so much. Not a lot of value is placed on marriage, and you can tell. And we'll talk about that. All right, anybody else? What do you know about the marriage supper of the Lamb? What have you heard? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It'll be a real event. Yes, sir. That's right. It will be a real event. What? What? I didn't. I'm sorry. The Lord will serve. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. What else? Anything? You know, as I began to study this, I was kind of like that. What did I know about the marriage supper of the Lamb? Not a lot. I had heard th different things. Of course, you know, I knew 
going to be a real event. I knew it was kind of an analogy. Then I started looking at where it's talked about in the Bible. Well, guess what? It ain't, it's not talked about a lot. <laughs> but if the Bible mentions one thing, it's important. You know, it mentions it once, mentions it twice, it's real important. And there's a lot of things that it mentions a whole lot more than that. But the marriage supper of the Lamb. Um, this Revelation chapter 19, I mean, this is, this is the climax, basically. I mean, we're going to go from the Hallelujah Chorus. We'll, we'll, we'll probably go ahead and read that. Uh, to the marriage supper of the Lamb, battle of Armageddon, return of Christ in glory. Um, and, of course, that will culminate, you know, in the end of this earth as we know it. And that, that's in different chapters. But Revelation 19 is, is a climax. But here we've seen what's going on on the earth. And now we kind of turn our attention to what's going on in heaven, depending on who you read. <laughs> you know, I, I said something, I don't remember what I was talking about last time, and I said, I've, I've, I've kind of narrowed it down to three books, and there was a certain topic, I can't remember what I was talking about, and I looked in those books and got three different opinions. Now, there's a lot of things that people don't agree on about the marriage supper of the Lamb, and there's no reason to get in a fight about it, because we don't know. You just don't, why do you get in a fight about things you don't even know about? There's things about exactly who is the bride. I'm not saying we don't know that. I'm just saying there, there are questions. Who, exactly who is it? And you can say the church. Okay, who is that? Because there's arguments on who the church is. Who are the attendants? Who are going to help the Lord serve? Who are the guests? When does it happen? Exactly. There's questions there. We'll talk about all that. Where does it happen? I didn't know that was even a question until I started studying it. <laughs> and it's not a question for me, myself. I'm gonna ha I got my opinion. But that's just some things. I didn't realize it was such a complicated subject, I guess, um, as far as some things that people disagree on. Um, but we can take very simple things and make them real complicated if, if we don't watch it. I think salvation is one of those things. We want to make it really complicated. It's, it's a simple salvation. It's not easy. It wasn't easy. Um, it came at a great price. But the, the, the gospel message is simple. And sometimes we, we overcomplicate things. But here we find ourselves in Revelation 19. Let's just go ahead and read. And our attention is turned to heaven. I'll close my Bible, I'm sorry. Revelation chapter 19. Let's just go ahead and read verse 1. We don't get to the marriage until just a little bit later. Um, but let's start in verse 1. And after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. Now, by the way, that's going on up there, I'm going to say all the time. But there is a point we've already talked about during the tribulation when heaven is silent. And I think that is a very critical thing to notice. That praise is going on up there constantly. But remember that time we talked about it. You can go back and look at it for yourself. When heaven was silent. So they're praising God up there. For true and righteous are his judgments, verse 2. For he hath judged the great whore, that's Babylon. We've already talked about that. Which did corrupt the earth with her fornication. 
and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia. And her smoke rose up forever and ever. Who is her? Babylon. Verse 4. And the four and twenty elders. Now we've already been introduced to these four and twenty elders. If you want to know who they are, you have to go study it. And the four beasts. We've already been introduced to these four beasts. Fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. And a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and the voice of many waters, and as the voice of many thunderings, this is your Alleluia chorus, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. What does omnipotent mean? What, is om- what does omnipotent mean? So God is omniscient. Do you know what that means? Omniscient. He's omniscient, omnipowerful, um, oh no, omnipotent, and omnipresent. Omniscient. All-knowing. He knows everything. Everything. And I think that's where some of these people that have Calvinist leanings and other things like that, they kind of get that mixed up. God knows everything. And I've heard somebody say, well, you, you get, you're getting too far into the knowledge of God. You can't. <laughs> you can't. He knows everything. How long has he known everything? Always. So omniscient. He's all-knowing. Omnipotent. He's all-powerful. And then omnipresent. He's all-present. And there is no time with God. And that's another thing our, our human brains cannot understand. That there is no time there. Now, when he said in his word, in the beginning, what was created? He created a time vacuum as far as we're concerned. But there is no time with him. He's already been to my funeral. So, omnipotent, hallelujah, for the Lord God, omnipotent, all-powerful, reigneth. Now, verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. Um, Notice very closely the terminology in verse 7. A lot of times, and nobody said this in here, you may have been thinking it, but... A lot of times when I think about the wedding supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb, even some sermons, I've heard people say, we're going to eat the best fried chicken in the world, you know, we've ever had. We're going to, what is it, uh, bananas like stove pipes and grapes like basketballs. Y'all ever heard, I heard somebody say that. A lot of, how happy are we going to be? Man, we're going to have a time over there. Well, guess what? Maybe that's true. I don't have any idea. But all of that is focused on 
me. But in verse 7, if you notice, it says the marriage of the Lamb. So where is the focus to be? It's to be on Christ. It's His joy. His joy that is in view here, not necessarily ours. Although we are going to have joy, don't get me wrong. But the important thing is it's Christ's joy. We'll get to this later, but guess who paid the price so that we could be there in the first place? He did. Why did he do it? Well, there's all kind of reasons, I guess, yeah. He loved us, there was the will of his father, you know. But he did it to make us fit for that time. We're not fit as we are. We're not fit for his presence. But because of his righteousness, now we can take part in that. So the, the lamb is the one in view. Um, Ephesians 1 Chapter 4. Look at this. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. I don't understand that. I, I mean, I believe it. But how can I be holy before him? It's kind of like Jude talking about he's going to present you faultless. I can't imagine that. I know my faults. I'm not holy. But one day we will be. But it said that he had chosen us. And a lot of times, again, that word chosen, that is the word. I don't do this a lot, but I thought this was, I just got something out of this myself. So I thought I'd share it. The Greek word, I don't even know if I'm pro pronouncing it right, eklegomai. And that means, it comes from two words, to call and to pick out. That's what that means. Now, have you ever heard anybody say what the Greek word for church is? Ekklesia. That ek is the same word, to call. It's a group of called out ones. So who did God choose? He chose the church. And when we start individualizing that, although there is a truth in that God saved you, that is when we start getting off on this. I'm going to say the Calvinistic teachings of God chose some for salvation and some he did not choose and you cannot be saved. I, don't, I reject that wholeheartedly. He chose the church. The only question is, are you going to be part of that? So he chose us, the church. And we are an earthly people. What, um, talking about us being an earthly people, what, what form is God in? God the Father, I guess I better say that. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. He's a spirit. God, that's clear. God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. What form is Jesus in? This is another thing. I can't, I can't even understand. I can't even understand it. What form is Jesus in? Think about when he was resurrected. When he was resurrected, um, if you remember, Mary Magdalene, I believe she was the first one that saw him. And now in that time, for him to appear to a woman first was unheard of. So he broke all their rules. But she wanted to be all over him. She wanted to hug on him and love on him. And, and he said, you remember what he told her? Don't touch me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. Then later, he appears, without him opening the door, to the disciples. And what does he say there? Help yourself. Something had happened. A change had been made. So, God is a spirit. We know that God is three and God is one. Don't ask me to explain that. I can't. I just believe it because that's what the Bible teaches God the Father is a spirit. Jesus said that. But Jesus, what form is he in in heaven? You scared to say? <laughs> That's correct. He's sitting at the right hand. Yes, ma'am. He is a great intercessor. First Timothy two five. Yes, it's exactly right. First Timothy two chapter five. Well, I'm in Thessalonians. Hang on. First Timothy two, chapter five. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men the man Christ Jesus Jesus is in his glorified body that's the form that he's in what form will we have when we are raptured out of here glorified body that sounds like a pretty good parent to me because I've heard a lot of people get real confused about how could a church with a glorified body wed a spirit. They're going to wed the man, Christ Jesus, who is in his glorified body in heaven. Now, I don't know what difference that makes or if you've ever thought of that. But that blows my mind. We're going to be like him. God's doing that now. He's making you like Christ. Now we're talking about physical glorified body. He's trying to make us like Christ. That's what he is doing. That's why we have so much trouble because we buck that. 
The more he tries to make us like Christ, the more we want to be like the world if we don't watch it. But how smooth it works if we just do what he says. If we'd be in his word like we should, if we'd pray like we should, we'd just let him make us like Christ. But he's going to make us just like him. That's right. So, as we think about this marriage, and a lot of times I think people, even myself studying this, we get caught up a little bit on the wedding supper because, like I said, I've heard a lot of things about the food. I don't even know if there'll be food there. I have no idea. But it's, it's, the picture is of a marriage. Not just, are you cold? I'm a little cold. Not just a wedding supper. One second. I think I'm about to freeze a couple people. Okay, the picture is not just of a feast. It's of a marriage and a marriage celebration. And think, think, what's the grandest wedding you've ever seen? That's a question for you. What, what's the grandest wedding you've ever seen? That's exactly what I think of. Yeah. Like Charles and Diana. You just think of this. I mean, there, there have been, and there's plenty that I, I, I haven't even seen, but there have been some grand marriage ceremonies. But this is going to top them all. This is the marriage of the Lamb. So this union, uh, I was, I'm very interested in, and I want to spend a little time here. I'm very interested in why our eternal bond or our joining, our relationship with Christ is likened to a marriage. Yes, sir. Yeah. You just ruined, I, I had four or five slides before I got there, but thank you for that. <laughs> you didn't even hear what I said, did you? You hear me? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I could, I, yeah, I'm not Miss Peggy, so you turn that thing on. Yes, ma'am. It's always been portrayed as a marriage. So, why? Look, look at, um, to go to something else, I want to look at Genesis chapter 2. And you don't get much further back than that, as far as this earth is concerned. Genesis chapter 2. And Andrew, am I right? This was like, 4.7 billion years ago? Is that? Well, don't get me started on that. About 6,000 years ago. Genesis chapter 2. Look at what, um, I'm sorry, what the Lord said in verse 24. 
Now this is it. This is, this is, this is, he's joining Adam and Eve here. Okay? And we're going to go look at what Jesus says about this right after this. Genesis 2, 24. Therefore shall a man That, that's still a valid word, right? I mean, I wonder how much longer, you know, how long is it going to be before somebody says, man, people are like, what, what, are you, what, what are you talking about, man? I mean, it's getting that bad. You understand that. But God said, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother. Now, Nancy Pelosi wouldn't like that. And you may be saying, don't get political. And I say, well, when you get up here, you can have the floor. But I got it right now, like Brother Kevin. I'll get, just, I'll get political. She don't want them saying father and mother in Congress. Ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, that's what I don't understand. If you don't like it, well, I'm sorry. God said a man is going to leave his father, which is a male, and his mother, which is a female. And that's the only two genders there are. I don't care who says what about it. That's it. That's what the Bible says. So he said, therefore shall a man, and I think I just put this verse in here so I can get that soapbox off my chest. <laughs> but therefore shall a man, leave, I'm kidding, leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife. It's meant for that to be female. And they shall be one flesh you know what that word one flesh implies it's one item and you can't even tell they were joined together it's not even Greg like you soldered some stuff together it's not that because you can tell I mean, if you take that sheetrock and all that off the, the sound booth, and we may have another place, I have no idea. But we definitely soldered some stuff up there, didn't we, Warren? And you can tell where you soldered. No, sir. No. That is not what that word means. That word means you can't tell one from the other. That's the way it's supposed to be. That's the way God, that's the way God intended it. They shall be one flesh. That's why later, and I, I don't know if we're going to read this or not, but, you know, how can you separate that? We do it, but it's not intended for that to happen. God said man is going to leave his father and mother, he's going to be joined to his wife, and they're going to be one. Flesh. One. Okay? Now, Matthew chapter 19. And I knew we was going to read a lot of scripture this morning, and that's much more important than anything I'll say anyway. So let's make sure we get everything out of this word that we can. Matthew chapter 19. Let's look at verses um, 3 through 8. Because, I mean, I don't know, you know, I think we're very blessed to be, to live where we live. Um, so I don't know who you'd come in contact with during the day. But I, I do come into contact with people, even in North Mississippi, that want to know how literal things are. 
And this is one of them. Is it, did he literally mean one forever? Is that what he meant? Well, in Matthew 19, Jesus took it literal. <laughs> so he says in verse 1, And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee, and he came into the coast of Judea beyond Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them <laughs> two options here? <laughs> you got two boxes to check. That's it. They're not 72. God made them male and female. Okay. All right, I'll get off that. He made them male and female. And said, for this cause, oh, he is quoting the book of Genesis. And he said, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife. And they twain, that's two, shall be one flesh. Wherefore, they are no more twain, but one flesh. What... God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. They say unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, Except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. Jesus took that literally. He said, one. Two are going to come together. Two are going to come together. There's going to be one, and you're not even going to, you shouldn't even be able to tell them apart. I'm going somewhere with this. Two shall come together and be one. This is the picture. This is the picture of our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible uses. Now, Paul later, if you turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5. Verse 25. Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourish and nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. For we are, now here's where he gets into it. For we are members of his body and of his flesh, of his bones. For this cause, now Paul's quoting the book of Genesis. Shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ 
and the church. Marriage is the picture of our relationship as the church to the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? It's to be permanent. That's clear. That's the way God intends it. It's to be permanent. It's to be perfect. It's to be monogamous. The Bible says our God's a jealous God. And you know, I don't know if you know or not, but that's, that's one, at least one of the verses that hung up old, old Miss Oprah. She said, I read that the Bible said God is a jealous God, and I, I just, I can't serve somebody that's jealous. Well, that's not a negative thing. It means you're going to serve him, and you're going to serve him alone. So it's to be monogamous. Good morning. And it's to be unbreakable. Permanent. Permanent and unbreakable. And that word, again, for joining them together, you can't even tell them apart. So why is marriage used to represent the relationship between Christ and the church? Okay, because when that happens, it's permanent. That bond is permanent. There is no breaking it. You can't break it. I can't break it. God's not going to break it. <laughs> it's permanent. And so we'll, we'll move on later and look at some of the parables of Jesus and talk about this marriage. We'll talk about a Jewish marriage too. Very interesting because that's what Jesus and Paul have in mind when they're talking about a marriage. Oh, yes. Yes, ma'am. Yes, thank you. When we say the church, we mean those that are born again. It, it does not matter if, you're, if your name's on the roll or not. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. That's right. So... You know, the only way to take part in the marriage supper of the Lamb between Christ and the church is be part of the church. The only way to be part of the church. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. All right, so let's go to the Lord in prayer. Donald, you want to dismiss us?